This is God's holy word. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you and glorify you and ask that you would use this word this morning to convict the heart, to convert the heart, to transform the heart. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We've been looking and and understanding and seeking to comprehend who the real Jesus is as Mark gives us recording of it. And as we look at that, I want us to remember the world that Jesus came into. We haven't talked a lot about Galilee, but I want us to talk about Galilee. Galilee was a place in many ways that was rather dark. It was a place of hurt. It was a place of pain. It was a place of horror. It was a place of brutality. It was a place of selfishness. It was a place of self-centeredness. It was a place of abuse. Sounds a lot like Tucson. And Jesus entered in to that world. That's the world He entered into. I think sometimes we tend to think about Jesus entering in and, you know, we, we, we get these wonderful movie images of, of Israel and Palestine and we have this idea of Hollywood and the, the palm trees and the pomp and the splendor and the glory of Rome and all those type of things. But let's remember that Jesus was a conquered man. And I don't mean him personally. I mean the people group he represented as a Jewish man. He was a part of a conquered people living in a land of conquest. And there was hurt, and there was pain, and there was suffering. And we need to see that because Mark is going to continue to draw us more and more into that world. And it's important as we see Jesus begin to call disciples that we understand the world He's entered into. And this is the way I want you to think about it, and many of you will know this, and hopefully some children will be drawn in by this, but I want you to think about this in the light of this little children's rhyme. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Now, if you're like me, and I know some of the kids in this congregation fairly well, and I bet they're like this, you probably ask that very philosophical question of, what was Humpty Dumpty doing on the wall to begin with? That's a great question. But being on the wall got him broken. 
And in some ways, what I want you to think about is we read the Old Testament. We read it about all the king's horses and all the king's men, and they can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. But what you don't hear about in that children's rhyme is the king. What about the king? Is it possible if the king comes, he can? And what might that look like if he showed up? See, Mark is really trying to draw us in and say, the reality is, is that when the king shows up, things change. All through the Old Testament, the cry was, the greater king, the greater prophet, the greater priest. And Mark is saying, he's here. And so even today as we begin to look at this, we need to begin to see the reality and be saying, what does it look like when the king shows up? Is it possible that all those broken pieces could be put back together again? And I'll leave you to, to take a stab at the answer. But let's look, begin to look at this passage. First thing I want us to think about as we see what's happening is Jesus is passing along the Sea of Galilee. It's a dark place. It's a, it's a hurting place. It's a place where people are suffering. But all the normal things of life are going on. People are getting married. People are being born. People are dying. People are working. All the normative things of life and that period of time we're going on. And Jesus comes walking along the Sea of Galilee. And the thing I want us to first look at, because I think it's really important that we see it when the king comes, we need to understand as we look at this passage, what is the king's cause? Why is he here? What's the point? And I think it helps us to see that before we start digging more deeply into what Jesus actually does. Why is he here? And we kind of can pick that up from what he says in verse 16 when he looks and he says that Simon and Andrew were both fishermen. And then he calls and says, I want you to come after and follow me because I want to make you fishers of men. And if we're just New Testament people and that's all we read, we tend to go, okay, he wants them to come after him and go fishing for people. That's a cute play on words. But there's much more going on here. And we begin to look into this passage. We begin to see the cause of the king is very clearly laid out when we look at this passage. If you have a Bible in your hands, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 16 and reading in verse 16 through 18. And I want us to see the thing that's happening in the Old Testament. Every time we get images of the fisher, usually what we get is judgment. I will lead you out with a fish hook in your mouth and take you into captivity. It's usually got to do with judgment. And it's, it's not, not dealing with judgment here in Jeremiah, but there's a different twist, if you will, to the whole issue. And I think it gives us insight into what's happening for Jesus and what the cause of the king is. Beginning in verse 16, Behold, the Lord says, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. 
But first I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. Now what you see in that passage is the notion that God is the great fisherman. And He's going to send for other fishermen to join with Him to gather all those who are sinful and wicked and have turned away from Him and are idolaters. That basically would be all of humanity. And He's going to send them out to gather those in, to begin to fish and to draw in men. Now, the idea here is He was going to draw back in His people, His scattered people. He was going to go out and hunt them down. He was going to go out and fish for them, throw the net out and pull them in. And we need to understand that when Jesus shows up on the scene by the Sea of Galilee and begins to call these men, He's not just saying, I want you to come join me because we're going to go out and gather a bunch of people and start a great movement. What we're seeing is the faithfulness of a sovereign God to draw a group of people together as He comes to earth who will be joining with Him in fishing for men. And what is it they're going to say? Well, they're going to announce the reality that the King has come. And they're going to warn that if you fail to repent and believe, like He says, all that awaits you is wrath and judgment. Now Mark is going to be explicit about this throughout the rest of his Gospel. Jesus is not giving options. His cause is to bring people to salvation which can only be found in Himself as the King. But if they refuse, all they will get is judgment. Because that's what happens when the fisherman shows up. Announcement of good news. The king has come. Salvation can be truly found. But if you refuse it, all that awaits you is death and damnation. And so we see that when Jesus shows up, the Old Testament reality starts to take place. We're at the end. The king is here. Repent and believe or perish. That's what is laid before us. And it's what the text is laying before us. As Jesus says, here's the cause. I've come to save sinners. Sinners, come. Sinners, repent. Sinners, believe. That's the call. And we see that as we begin to work through the rest of this. But I really want you to understand and begin to see that that is the cause. That is what's going to play out throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark. The King has come to call people away from the judgment that is coming. And it is coming. And Mark wants us to emphatically see judgment awaits those who do not come. So the second thing I want us to look at is the King's call. And wants to look at some of the language here that's being used. When you look here at verse 17, it says, And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. First thing I want us to look here is, is the idea of when Jesus says, Come, 
follow me. It's actually a command. It's not a, hey, why don't you come out and hang with me? Hey, wouldn't it be a great idea if we went out and started talking to some folks and got a group of folks to hang out at the coffee shop and start a little Bible study? And Wouldn't that be cool? Jesus is speaking much like the way God spoke the creation into existence. Be, and it was. And He called to the, to the day and said, said, you are called to the light and said, you are day. And He called to the darkness and said, you are night. It's got that creative element to it. It's this creativity of God. It's, it's like the Creator has showed up and begun to call human beings to life. And so he calls the disciples and says, Come, follow me. And the idea of follow him, that language there, which we can't really, it's, it's hard to give a good understanding of that in English. I think the translations you read are really trying to strive to help you understand the language that's going on here. But the idea has within it to turn away from something, even though the word there is not repent, the idea is to come, leave what you're doing, and follow me. What did Jesus say? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Turn away from that towards me and believe. Trust me. Trust me. And so what we see in this passage then is the idea of, of this creative. It's also the idea, as I said, it was a command, so it has the sense of being authoritative. Jesus is not asking for opinion polls. Okay? He's saying, come, follow me. You may have a choice, but the consequences are not who you get for president. The consequences are your very soul. And so what we see as we look here at Jesus' call, we begin to see. The other thing I want us to notice about the king's call is that it is progressive. Again, the English is trying to work out when it says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. We tend to read that, I think, most of us, and think that Jesus has this idea of, come follow me and you'll instantaneously be fishers of men. But the word there is actually the idea of giving birth to a child and raising them. And so what you begin to see is, is that the idea of what Jesus is calling them to is something that is going to be progressive. It's going to take time. It's not going to happen like that. They're going to have to go through the toils and struggles of discipleship to be his disciples. It's not just something that's going to happen. In order to be fisher of men, they're called to go out and fish for men, but they're going to be in a process of growing up to get there. Now think that has to have some understanding for us as we think about the king's call, because while I don't want to suggest that we're just like Peter and Andrew, James and John, there are some distinctions in them because they ultimately become apostles. But they were raised up to go out and raise up disciples who would raise up disciples who would raise up disciples who would raise up disciples and on and on and on. And so we see at least derivatively that this has a bearing on us. When Jesus says, come, follow me, He's not suggesting that it would be a good idea if you did it. 
He's not saying, sit back and debate for a while what, what your options are. He's saying, come, follow me. And he continues to say it to us. Come, follow me. And we have to wrestle with that call. And we have to understand that that call is going to be progressive. We need to understand that it's going to be challenging. And we also need to understand that that call calls us to be fisher of men. There's no way to get around it men and women. Jesus has called His people to go out and gather His people. The last thing before we leave this call is I want you to see that the call is effective. It does what it sets out to do. Correct? These men, Peter, James, John, Andrew, all become pillars, if you will. They begin to become those who are marked out as the new 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus, when He calls them, when His creative voice speaks, it is effective in what He seeks to do. They come and accomplish what He sets out for them to do. He set out to make them fishers of men. And that is what they became. And we need to see that. That the call is not just some, well, maybe it will happen. Well, it might happen. When Jesus' call goes out to someone and draws them in to be His disciple, it is an effective call. It does what it sets out to do. And we need to be people who are saying, I want to be in line with the call. I'm called. I need to be in line with the call. I want to follow. I need to not turn to the right or to the left. I need to go where He leads. Now the third thing, and that segues into our final point, which is the cost of the king. I want you to look at what is being laid out for us here. In some ways, this is not all that different from us, but the two things that are immediately drawn out of this text is, is that Peter and Andrew are fishermen, and they leave their vocation behind. They drop their nets and walk away and go follow Jesus. John and James leave their portfolio and their family behind. They leave their vocation. They leave their wealth. I mean, Andrew and Peter had nets. James and John had hired hands and a boat that was their inheritance and their father in it. Do you see what's going on here? The idea is that when Jesus is calling them, He's calling them away from everything. He's calling them to give up everything. So much so that Jesus later on in the Gospels will say, if you do not hate mother, father, husband, wife, sister, brother, in comparison to me, because it is a comparison. It's saying as in contrast to, not as in you ought to hate them and love Him. But if you don't hate them, if you're not willing to say, all of it can go away if I still just have Jesus, 
then you cannot be my disciple. And if you can't be my disciple, then you can't enter the kingdom. What we need to understand is the cost of the king is, and following the king is, it costs you everything. It costs you everything. Now you may think that that's okay, I get that, but do you really understand what it's saying? Look around this room. We have mothers and fathers. We have sisters and brothers. We have husbands and wives. We have friends. If Jesus takes them, is He enough? If you go home tonight and the email comes in and says, Marty, don't bother coming in tomorrow for work. In fact, don't bother coming in ever again. Your job is gone. Is Jesus enough? See, that's what's being laid out for us. Everything. Because see, anything you can point to and say, Jesus, I can give you everything as long as, then that is your Savior, not Jesus. That's what you really put your hope in, not Jesus. And Jesus, as He calls people to discipleship, says, there can be no other God before Me. All the idols must go. Every single one of them. They must go. Remember, it's progressive. But they must go. When you see one, you must tear it down. All to Jesus. All for Jesus. Now, the other thing I want us to think about as we look at the cost is because we could take that kind of thinking and people have and go, well, this is why we shouldn't go to work and this is why we shouldn't do anything else but just go out and witness to people. That's it. That's all we're supposed to do as Christians. Nothing else. Just go out and tell other people about Jesus. That is not what's being talked about here. And in fact, I want to say to you that it, it's a, there's a tendency within our culture to kind of look at people, and we talk about it all the time in the news, right? We talk about fanaticism. We talk about you know radical fundamentalism in, in all its forms. And people tend to look very suspiciously at Christians especially who say, you know, Jesus is everything to me, that I'm, I'm willing to give up everything for Jesus. Like, what are you, some kind of radical fundamentalist? You're some kind of crazed fanatic? The other thing people can't stand, right, is hypocrites. People who say one thing and do another. People who say, oh yeah, I, I, I'm a follower of Jesus, but there's not one thing you can find in how they live that seems to give any testimony or justification to that claim. And the reality is, is that when we come to Jesus, we tend to think, well, we don't want to look like a looney tune. And we certainly don't want to look like we're liars. So what we need to do is kind of find this idea of, you know, we want to be serious about Jesus, but not crazy. You know, I mean, let's be serious about this, but 
Let's not get out of control. And what I've just told you about everything for Jesus is this. Do you see that finding a balance between those two actually leaves you in nowhere land? It doesn't leave you with all to Jesus, I surrender. It leaves you with Jesus, you have control basically of everything, but I still have a vote. And sometimes my vote gets to count double. And see, what Jesus says is, and what he's saying is, if you're a person who's actually gone the way of quote-unquote radical fundamentalism, you are not really a fanatic for Jesus. Because see, what's the hallmark of radical fundamentalism no matter what religion it attaches itself to? What is it? What is it? Think about that. It's usually hallmarked by violence, by judgment, by harshness. It's not known like the kingdom of heaven and certainly not like the Savior who seeks to serve, not to be served. Who seeks to love, not necessarily to be loved. Who seeks to heal, not necessarily to be healed. Who seeks to draw in, not necessarily to be included. Those are the marks of the kingdom. Because see, Jesus came to save His enemies. Not to annihilate them. That's what we see throughout Mark. Lepers being healed. Deaf people being healed. Hemorrhaging, stopping. People who were lost in darkness being set free. People who were in bondage to sin being forgiven. See, those are the marks of the kingdom. So if someone is supposedly serious about Jesus and serious about the Bible, but their seriousness always seems to lead them to a place where they're always pointing out what's wrong, who's wrong, who's failed, who doesn't do it like they're supposed to, I'm not sure you really are all that sold out to Jesus. I think you're sold out to your comfortability. What makes you comfortable? What makes you feel secure in this world? But see, the call of discipleship, the cost of the king, is that you are brought to a place where you are stripped bare of all security but Christ. Where you literally say, if He does not secure me, if He does not hold me, if He does not keep me, I will fall and fail. See, we haven't gotten there yet if we're not people who recognize how great our salvation is and therefore extend the forgiveness and the grace that's been shown to us to others. We're not really fanatics, quote-unquote, for Jesus. We're just fundamentalists of another sort, just like the rest. And Jesus calls us to himself to humbly bow and say, if I get nothing else but you, I've got everything. And see, 
the last part of that I want to talk about is the fact that in that, what Jesus is saying to us in some real sense is, you cannot use me to your own ends. Because we want to look at Jesus and say, Jesus, if I come to you, I want you to be my friend. Jesus, if I come to you, I want to make sure you give me life and life as I defined it. And Jesus, if I come to you, I want you to give and I want you to give. And, you know, you, I want you to be my king and I want you to be my savior and I want you to make life better and I want you to do all these things. If that is your criteria, you have not yet come. Now, I'm not suggesting that if you have Jesus, you won't have the best friend you could possibly ever have, because you will. And I'm not suggesting that if you have Jesus, you won't have the most profound freedom of your heart and soul that you have ever experienced. I'm not suggesting that when you come to Jesus that you will not have a sense of understanding of life that you have never had before. But if you put terms on Jesus... You have not come. Now I'm saying all this to us because you need to come to a place where you realize the cost is so severe that none of you, including me, could ever pay it ourselves. Just can't. You need to hear the call in such radical terms that you go... Who can do this? And then you begin to see where Jesus is drawing you to. Because see, Jesus is the one who says this to you. I left a throne to come walk among you. I left the portfolio. I left the inheritance to come be one of you. I left my father. I estranged myself from my father on the cross. I was put under the judgment of God that you deserve in your place. Jesus says to us, look at me and see that the cost of discipleship was paid by me. I've taken the ultimate Price. I walked the way of discipleship straight into hell so that you could walk the road of discipleship straight into heaven. That's the cost. That's the cost. That doesn't let us off the hook, so to speak. It doesn't mean you go, great, Jesus did it. Now we can go home and everybody be happy and go right back to the way we were. Oh, no, 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 no. See, the hymn writer gets it right. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. See, if you come to the King and you would have everything, if you would have life, you must die. If you would have treasure in heaven, you must give it away. That's the reality. That's what we're called to. But we see that Christ has done it, and in Him we cannot fail if we will come and follow Him. Come, follow Jesus. May God make it so in our midst. 
Amen.